Hello and welcome. This is Unconventional Ministry, and I am your host, Ron Stafford. On today's program of Unconventional Ministry, we're going to have a wonderful chat with a woman whose father was a hired assassin for Yasser Arafat. Coming your way right now, part one of her powerful story right here on today's program. On the phone with me right now is Farah Sadal Marvel. She is COO for an organization known as Hope for Ishmael. We'll talk about what that organization is all about in just a moment. Farah, thank you so much for being on the line with me today. Greatly appreciate it. Hey, it's great to be here. I love um, being able to just share what God's doing. What is Hope for Ishmael, and how do you reach the uh, Palestinian people? The original vision of my father's whole salvation story, through his own coming to understand that the truth of Abraham, that the truth of who Ishmael is in the, the grand scheme of the whole Middle East conflict of a 4,000-year-old family feud, basically, between you know the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac. Mm-hmm. And, and so the vision for Hope for Ishmael was to see reconciliation for the Middle East in the sense of you know Palestinians and Israelis and, and finding that reconciliation first to, to the Lord and then to each other. Um, because we all know that reconciliation in any situation first has to happen with forgiveness. And so um, without that forgiveness, then you're just kind of at a stalemate. And that's kind of where we're at, basically, in the world right now. Exactly. Um, And so um, Hope Fershman was the original vision for why God put him into ministry, brought him even to Christ. And we've done several different things, but um, we started out in the Middle East in certain um, areas that didn't seem to work out because of all of the um, terrorism influences, and we ended up evolving to a um, a different organization, which is a, a humanitarian aid organization now that we founded as a um, sister organization yes. to Hope for Ishmael, and so and, okay. and they're like the boots on the ground in the Middle East. Okay, whereas Hope for Ishmael is kind of the vision, what the the end game is. Gotcha. Talk for our listeners about the role that your father played in the Palestinian conflict. He had the nickname of the Butcher. Talk about that role that he had and how he came to faith in Christ. And then we'll talk about uh, his relationship to you uh, growing up in your teenage years. Just just give us a background, if you would, on all that, please. Sure. His book is actually available. It's called Once an Arafat Man. You know, he came to the U.S. in the 70s. And um, I honestly didn't know this story because he was very... Uh, very secretive about what he had been in his past. But as a young man, a Palestinian refugee living in um, Doha, Qatar, and growing up there and constantly feeling like a, a, a man without a land, a man without a home, because they're they're still considered, my family is even today still considered refugees. Mm. They've never been given citizenship, even though they've lived, you know, 40 plus years in that, in that country. Yes. And so he ran away as a young man, in his late teens to join the PLO because he was watching nothing happen. He thought if he could join the fight, then maybe he could make a difference. And after the 67 war and the results of that, he kind of basically ran away from home. During that time, he ran away to Jordan, joined the PLO. Um, Yasser Arafat was just kind of coming up in the, in the ranks and becoming the face of the the resistance. And um, during that time in training, he really, he, they realized, oh, this guy's got some talent. <laughs> and so mm. um, they trained him, groomed him as a an assassin for special operations. And um, he was also a driver for Yasser. So he had privy information about um, a lot of things that were happening that 
you know, most people wouldn't even know, even if you were to search news and, and of history. Yes. Um, you know, obviously throughout that time, the Palestinian movement was always hit with a brick wall because, I mean, and we all know, and in my opinion, you know, the Lord is over his people. Regardless of their faithfulness, he's still faithful. Yes. He felt like, well, I can't do anything with my fists. Let me get an education. And um, my grandparents offered him to the opportunity to go to England or Egypt or France to go to school. And he said, no, I want to go to America. Hmm. They were absolutely against that. But um, he just kind of basically made life very difficult for them until he got his way and got to the U.S. because a friend of his was already in Columbia, Missouri, going to University of Missouri. And um, so he came to MU. His first experience in the United States was dead of winter in Missouri. And um, he jokes about the fact that he thought the snow on the ground was white sand. <laughs> so because he had never seen snow before. Interesting. And, um, and also it was the seventies. And he said they were the streaker movement was happening during that time. <laughs> so like his whole perception of the United States, everything that he was being taught as far as it being like Satan's country and all of this stuff, he was just like, oh, absolutely. You know, until he got to know the people. And then he realized that, you know, the attitude of the American mindset was welcome make your life what you want it to be and realized it wasn't everything that he was being taught and wanted to stay but he didn't necessarily enjoy college so he didn't want to stay in education he wanted to start getting into some sort of business but his friends were like unless you're here under a visa you can't stay here he's like well then how do i stay and they told him you got to marry an american and that's what he did he went looking for an american uh, he met my mom at a local pub and um, started the whole journey, really. Um, he had no intention of staying married to her. He was going to get his green card and move on. Huh. Um, but over time, and, and at that time, it didn't take the length of time to, that it does now to get your green card. At that time, you just had to be married for like two or three years, pay the, the fees and do the right applications, and you're right. good to go. Right. You know, right. like seven years now. But, pardon me, um, once he got his green card, um, she had told him basically that she was pregnant with me. So (laughs) that kind of put a damper on his plans. And he decided, okay, well, then I'm staying and we're going to see what happens. And and to be honest, it was definitely a rough life. Um, It was a it's a culture clash, um, a big part of that, because. You know, he had a completely different mindset, a completely different cultural culture growing up in and his idea of what marriage should look like and all of those things. And then here's my mom, this, you know, Midwest Irish Catholic girl. They had a lot of issues in in marriage. And my relationship with my dad was extremely difficult because, again, you know, the the mindset and the view of um, Middle East culture is that, you know, women are second class citizens. The thought of me being raised in this culture was very horrifying to him. He actually wanted to send me back to my family in the Middle East. Mm. But my mom, of course, was, no, that is not going to happen. And we just had a very, very rough, rough family life period because he was he was still wanting to be doing his own thing. And um, 
so it was just very difficult and we didn't he worked a lot he was very driven very work oriented and, and success and wanted you know the fame and the fortune and the, the american dream and um what his idea of the american dream was was fame and fortune and all of those things and it's hard to do that when you've got a family to take care of <laughs> yeah, yeah so um that basically was where we were at i was 15 years old um my parent, my brother was um, three years older than me. He was graduating high school soon. Um, he's my my half brother, and actually, my dad adopted him when when he was five. Wow. So they changed his name and everything, and um, which was a different thing too for his culture. Adoption is not something that they necessarily agree with. Yeah. Um, and so his family wasn't happy about that. Um, they actually cut him off from all financial support when he married my mom um, because they were angry with him for doing that so there was so much going on and by the time um i was 15 years old he had left us for about a year and a half to go do his thing um and my mom was working three jobs and we were just kind of scraping by and, and he came back during the first half of his time in the u.s he was working as a um, he started out as a dish um, washer in a local five-star french restaurant huh. in kansas city yeah while he was there, he worked his way his way up through the ranks. The man who owned the place, the the chef, kind of recognized his talent for um, being able to do management and, and just really entertain the people. He was very charming and very you know could sell wine really well, you know, and yeah. things like that. Yeah. And so, um, and during that time, there was a man who was a very was a regular to the restaurant. His name was Charles Sharp, and he was uh, very wealthy, known here in the city. Um, he was an insurance, uh, founded a large insurance company, and um, they built a relationship, a friendship. And um, over the years, they kind of would fall out of touch and then come back in touch. And because um, my dad eventually went to work for Weston Hotels and Resorts, and um, that's when he left us. During that time, he went out to LA to work for them. Mm. And um, that was really about the time that God was starting to was the hounds of heaven were on his heels, you know, and um, he just kept just one thing after another and he came home and um, he rekindled that relationship with Charlie. And but the difference was this time Charlie was different. He had a light in his eyes, this peace that he had never seen before. He was he was married to the woman that he was bit, had been living with for years. He would praise the Lord and things like that. And he was just kind of like, what's going on? And dad was just in such, you know, deep turmoil, um, from just everything that had been happening and what was going on in marriage and with us kids at home and everything. And, um, the restaurant was actually the contract for the rental space was not being renewed and they were going to have to find a new place to put it. And he mm -hmm. was just having a really hard time. And Charlie, one night when it was, really busy there he just finally asked charlie he's like what is going on what is this that i see charlie said you know we can't talk about this right now let's get together and don't worry i've got connections and that's all he said to him connections and that's my great dad just died he was like what is this connection what is this connection and so he was just hounding charlie like tell me what's going on yeah and finally, we were actually, I remember the day because we were at the restaurant packing everything up and um, this really nice Lincoln pulls up and my dad gets in the car and they drive away. 
and we're just kind of looking at each other like what just happened and didn't know that Charlie had picked him up and taken him back to his house and what was happening was uh, Charlie back took him back to his house and first thing he, Charlie says to my dad is to ask to have the peace that I have you have to love a Jew my dad just lost it. It's like, you know who I am. You know my past. Why are you telling me this? You know, sort of thing. And um, Charlie's just like, calm down. Let me tell you what I'm doing. And so he brought him into the living room, pulls out a Bible, lays it down between them, and starts talking to him and starts reading First John. Uh-huh. And... Um, Dad said, you know, I, I heard him reading, but I felt like I was shaking and being lifted up off the couch and placed on my knees. And then I saw a light and the light spoke to me saying, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the father, but through me. And, um, he said when he felt, when he finally kind of came out of the fog, he was lifting his hands and proclaiming Jesus as Lord. And so, and Charlie, he says, he looks at Charlie and Charlie looks like he's just seen a ghost or something. He's just like, I don't know what that was, but that was amazing. He comes back, the restaurant's closed and every day he's just, he's got this Bible and I knew it was a Bible. I had no experience with the Christian church other than Catholic mass. Okay. And um, because my whole life, my, my father had said, you know, we're Muslim. That is our belief. And so, um, and that was it. I, that was my answer to everything. When people would, friends would ask me to go to church for youth and things like that, that was my answer. And, um, but I wasn't really sure what that meant because it was, you know, late eighties, early nineties, yeah. Midwest, you know, Kansas city, the, the, the Middle Eastern population was next to nothing. Yeah. We were the only family with a Middle Eastern name in the small town suburb of Kansas city. You know, oh. So um, I had no idea what that meant. And so, but I saw him reading this Bible. Well, actually, I saw him with a book that had gold lining around the outside. And eventually I took a peek at it and I realized, okay, well, that's my Bible. And, um, and all he was doing was sitting with a highlighter and day in and day out, because during that time he had no job. They were trying to figure out what was going to, where they were going to go next. And he's just highlighting and highlighting. And then he would get really upset and he would close it and he would go up to his room and I'd hear murmuring behind the door and he was praying basically. And my mom and I are both like, what is going on? <laughs> he didn't tell us anything because hmm. he couldn't really under, he couldn't really understand or describe what he was going through. I was just going to say he was a new Christian. He was going to say learning as he was going. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, again, nobody knew what to do with a convert and realizing that, you know, his ancestors and the history of, of belief system that he believed in was, has been skewed, you know? And yeah. so he was wrestling with all of that. First time we went to church, he, um, he came into my room on a Sunday morning. Sundays were like our day to just hang out because he didn't work on Sundays. He comes into my room at like six o'clock in the morning and flips on the light and says, get up, we're going to church. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> like church. And the church that he was taking us to was like on the other side of the city. It was like a 45 minute drive to get there. And it was in the basement of a bank and it was like not church in my world. My, my thought is I'm, we're going to a Catholic church, like the stained glass windows and the crosses everywhere and all of that. Right. No, we went to the basement of a bank with lawn chairs and a drum kit and some electric guitars. <laughs> I thought he had found a cult. It was a non-denominational church with AOG roots. I mean, I just thought these people were crazy. 
And he and I absolutely had no relationship at that point. I would hide in my room and he would sit and watch TV. I'd come down and get food and go back up to my room. And um, so this was like crazy to me, but I had, because I was terrified of the man. (laughs) So if I I wasn't going to say no. So, um, because he had very explosive anger, which was another thing that completely, like within a 24-hour flip, he was a different person, completely. The youth pastors basically then became that parental voice that that I needed. They were amazing. They were just genuine. They loved Jesus with everything they had, and they were genuine. They weren't, you know, say one thing, do another. They lived it, and we lived it with them because they had us at their house every day if we wanted to. You know, like, so we saw their life and Hmm. saw how real they were about their faith. That was huge for me as a teenager. And um, so it took me about a year after his salvation to come to the Lord. My brother had been hiding his faith. Um, He had come to the Lord four months prior to my dad's um, conversion. Um, his, His high school girlfriend had been going back to church at a local Baptist church here in Kansas city. It was actually one of the larger ones now, but um, she basically broke it off with them. And we're not equally yoked. I can't continue this. And so that kind of basically spurred him forward to say, well, what is this then making a bunch of friends in her church? And they discipled him into the kingdom basically. Wow. Very cool. And um, excited about giving his life to Christ. And he tells my brother and my brother starts crying and is excited too. And it, you know, all of this. And then my dad's like, well, wait a minute, why are you excited? (laughs) So, and that's when my brother got to share with him that he had given his life to Christ. And actually the pastor of that church was so wise because he had told my brother, my brother was terrified. He didn't know if, you know, if I go home and tell my dad, I might get kicked out, you know, at the very least, you know? And, um, he said, no, you just go home and you love your dad. Like you've never loved him before. You show him the love of Christ. You don't need to proclaim anything. You need to show it to him. And then their church just prayed. And that was, we truly believe, was the fruit of their labor of pouring into my brother and praying for our family. And um, my mom, it wasn't a far leap for her. She had already, even though, you know, everybody is different in in their walk. And obviously, I honestly, I have seen so many different um, denominations of faith that, that where it's either been, you know, just something where it's culturally done and, and that person has, doesn't really have a relationship. And then I have my mom who I truly believe had in Christ. She just didn't understand rebirth because it was never taught to her. Hmm. Um, and so it kind of like once dad gave his life to Christ and she started going to a church that could explain it, it the, she connected the dots finally, Interesting. you know, and um, so it was not a leap for her to go, yes, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. Wow. And, um, but for me, I decided to go further into Islam Really? to try and yeah, I decided that whatever he had, whatever God my dad had, I wasn't interested in. I wanted to find out and figure out who was Allah. What is this faith that we had? And I also knew that if the choice that he made was going to make things very rough for our relationship with my family in the Middle East. And I wasn't willing to give that up because I barely knew them and barely had a relationship already. And um, But I had identified mostly with my Palestinian side, partially because I think I look mostly like my dad <laughs> anyway. Yeah. It's kind of the odd man out in my Irish Catholic family on, yeah. in the United States. 
so I spent a lot of time in the library at the high school and trying to figure out, well, okay, what is Islam? What do I believe, you know? Coming up on our next podcast, you'll hear the conclusion of Farah's story and how God truly changed her life. You're listening to Unconventional Ministry.